Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Hello and welcome to FT Science with me, Clive Cookson. This week, I'm back in the studio with a packed show for you. We'll be discussing the difficulties of securing government funding for research. We'll be finding out about the discovery of an ultra-fast form of evolution. And we'll be talking about Chinese life sciences. I'm joined today, as usual, by Diana Garnham, Chief Executive of Britain's Science Council. Hello, Diana. Hello again, Clive. And our special studio guest is the computer scientist, Andrew Herbert, who runs Microsoft Research in Cambridge. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Clive. And also on the line, we're joined by the other Andrew, my colleague Andrew Jack. Yes, good evening from uh, Shanghai, Clive. What are you doing in Shanghai? Partly here chairing an FT discussion on Chinese healthcare and also talking to both scientists and companies, Western and local, about some pretty exciting developments and growth in the sector here in recent years. Sandra, we'll be talking more about Chinese life sciences and those exciting developments later on. Before we launch into our first big topic today about the difficulties facing scientists when it comes to securing funding... Andrew Herbert, perhaps you could give us an idea of the sort of research Microsoft carries out in Cambridge. We're a basic computer science laboratories. We do a huge amount of work on building mathematical models, and we found that some of those models we can transfer to other areas of science um, and look, for example, at the the biochemistry of a a cell in a biological organism and use some of the maths to prove properties of biology. And that's an interesting way of thinking about how you might cure disease. We also do quite a lot around user interfaces, gesture, touch, new kinds of hardware. And how does it work having a corporate-funded lab within a university like Cambridge? How does the funding and the governance work? So I should be absolutely precise. And We're a tenant of the university, but we're a completely independent laboratory. The way it works is we're a Microsoft business division. I'm funded, so I have to agree with Microsoft what the funding is every year. That funding is based more on our track record of what we've produced rather than promises about the future. And that's a tremendous trust that the company has in us. So we set our own agenda. Research comes first. And our our mission statement is very simple. The first sentence is advance the state of the art in computer science. And that's a scientific objective. The second then is use the results of that science for the benefit of the company. And the third one, just for completeness, is ensure Microsoft has a future. How much do you think corporate funding of fairly basic research, such as you've been talking about, can make up for what we all think are going to be cuts in government funding? I don't think we can. Microsoft is unusual in being one of the few companies who still maintain a corporate research labs, and we have six of them around the world, um, allowed to do basic research. In many companies, if they have research labs at all, it's applied research or translational research. So there's a huge dependency on universities to do basic research. I think now I'd like to broaden out our discussion about funding and research 
Last week in Turin, I met a very interesting Italian stem cell scientist, Elena Cataneo. She runs the stem cell lab at the University of Milan, and she's fighting the Italian government over its refusal to fund embryonic stem cell research, even though it's legal in Italy. Here's what Elena had to say. The conditions are not great because uh, since ever, I would say, Italy has not been that much interest in science, but I would say they are sufficient to allow you to develop some research. Of course, if you would depend only on the Italian condition, you would go, I mean, you would stop very soon, so you have to also link up with other international situations and above all with uh, the European Union and the United States and uh, I think we survive uh, because of that. Could you survive on the basis of Italian government funding through the research councils in this country? You know, in general, uh, the money that this country makes available uh, for research is meaningless. And, and of course, there is a lot of competition because, uh, quite paradoxically, there are very good scientists in this country. So competition is very high and the money is very limited. And uh, I would say, in addition, there are uh, some additional limitations to your own uh, research that comes from the government and from the way the government interprets science. Uh, so I believe that science should be free. I mean, we should be able to go into any direction. I mean, this is necessary, I mean, when you act at the border. But let's say this freedom, I learned myself, I mean, this freedom can be taken away from you very easily, even when you are in a country that allows, I mean, research, uh, that consider that the research is important and consider that some research is uh, legal. For example, if you think at the human embryonic stem cells, which is just one of the stem cells that we like to work because they are so powerful and they have so many potentialities, if you think at this uh, research, uh, this is legal in Italy. I mean, you can work on these cells, and so there should be no limitations. But in the end, the government puts limitations in the funding of this uh, research. And this happened last year in 2009 when, uh, in a call for p of proposals on stem cell biology, basically the government decided to exclude uh, this type of research from the possibility of being funded through the public uh, uh, money. And uh, we reacted against this. And when I say we, I'm saying three women scientists, and we decided to sue the Italian government because this research is legal in this country, and this research is pertinent to the topics identified in the call of proposal from the Minister of Health. So we wanted to know why, I mean, a government, and whether it is possible, whether a government has the possibility you know, to exclude, without any motivation, to exclude a piece of knowledge, a piece of research like that. And we believe that actually this action by the government amounts to an abuse of power. So this is why we decided to sue the Italian government and uh, the fight is still going on. Of course, there are other countries where doing embryonic stem cell research wouldn't even be legal. Germany and, I think, Ireland, to name but two. Well, we have echoes here of what happened in the US, where it was legal to do the research, but you couldn't use the federal budget to do it. And I think, again, and in the European community, I think these things happen when the politicians and the officials 
thinking about a subject falls behind where the scientists and perhaps sometimes the general public are on the priority of areas of research. And it's almost like they, they're introduced by a back door, the regulations that stop certain areas of research moving forward. I mean, in the worst case, we sometimes see it in terms of animal-based research for biology with some institutions saying, well, we won't fund the animal research, which is illegal and essential. So it's really about the transparency of that decision-making process. I wish her well with her suing the Italian government. Andrew in Shanghai, does all this seem terribly parochial out in China where this sort of research, I think, is well-funded? Yes, I mean, it certainly sounds um, striking. I guess, obviously, Italy, you've got the combination of the budget crisis that Italy, amongst other European nations, seems to have been particularly hard affected by. And then one imagines um, some degree of religious influence behind the scenes, helping to provide an additional filter when they are looking for cuts or excuses not to increase funding. And certainly that's very different from the environment I'll talk about uh, later here in China, where the government is actively funding all sorts of research, not just applied, but much earlier stage um, academic uh, research going on in life sciences and other areas. How much does it matter where it happens? I mean, I think Elena regards herself as a world scientist, and she's staying in Italy because she's Italian. Also, last week, the UK science minister, David Willits, was in effect saying, don't take such a nationalistic view of where discoveries happen. It seems to me that it's less of an issue now where the discovery of the new knowledge is generated. It's how quick we are to uh, use it and make use of it. There's a phrase that David Willits wants us to think of an improvement on, which I think is absorptive capacity. He wants to make sure that the UK has enough absorptive capacity to take in all the exciting science If you're going to do exciting science, I think you do need critical mass. And if we had a model of of one biologist in every European country, that wouldn't work. We have to think about consolidation for for basic science and big programs. Clearly, every industrial country needs to have people in that country who can exploit the science. And if you're going to do that at the fast pace of one scientific endeavour, you've got to be a player in that scientific system. And so you do need to have people who are working in research. They might not be at the absolute forefront of making new discoveries, but they need to be collaborating with those people and thinking, having the first thoughts about applications and broadening out the research. Some people call that translational research. I think of it as having a national capability so that we can sustain our industrial base and make policy. I'm sure that we'll be returning to these funding and science and technology policy issues time and time again because they're so fascinating. Now we're going to turn to exciting science in the US. So over to Robert Frederick in Washington for this week's contribution from AAAS and Science magazine. Thanks, Clive. For the first time, researchers have found that a bacterium helps defend its host, a fruit fly, against a parasitic species of nematode worm. If the researchers can extend the work with this bacterium, called spiroplasma, they may have a new way to combat diseases like river blindness, which affects millions of people in dozens of countries and is caused by a species of nematode worm that lives inside black flies. So we're going to see, in the lab at least, whether or not spiroplasma can be transmitted in black flies and whether it has an adverse effect on nematodes within black flies. 
John Janicki of the University of Rochester is lead author of a paper in the latest issue of Science about how spiroplasma living inside fruit flies has helped the fly adapt to a nematode parasite. Without the spiroplasma, Janicki says, the fruit flies don't do so well. And virtually all of them, if they were parasitized, were completely sterilized by the nematodes. But what the spiroplasma bacteria is actually doing to the nematodes is still a mystery. Although I can tell you by dissecting flies and looking at the nematodes, the nematode parasites inside these flies, if the flies carry spiroplasma, the nematodes really are not doing well. They're a lot smaller. Sometimes they look very sick. They're shriveled. They're brown. They're not big and fat like the nematodes inside flies that do not carry spiroplasma. So the spiroplasma are definitely having some kind of adverse effect on the nematodes, but we don't know the mechanism of that yet. Nevertheless, among the females that were parasitized by the nematodes, Janicki and his team showed that those flies also infected with the bacteria were 10 times more fertile than those who were not infected with the bacteria. That's allowing the spiroplasma bacterial infection to spread quickly. The spiroplasma are transmitted from infected mothers to their offspring at a very high rate. And therefore, by restoring the fertility of infected parasitized female flies, the spiroplasma are passed on to the next generation and the flies themselves benefit because they have their fertility restored. But it's not as if you can just take one species of symbiotic bacteria and transplant it into a different host and expect it to have the same defensive effect. Nancy Moran tried that with the bacterial species that she found helped aphids fight off parasitoid wasps. What we found is we can move our symbionts between rather different aphid species much of the time, and sometimes they manage fine, and other times they just don't persist or they kill it. They kill the host because they just interact with the host genotype in a way that has a different outcome. Moran is a researcher at Yale University and is not associated with the study. She says spiroplasma may be able to jump easily between species of fruit flies or drosophila. But if you just take one strain out of a drosophila, and put it in you know, something quite distinct, it may or may not work. So instead, it may be yet another still undiscovered bacterial species that's needed to defend against the river blindness-causing nematodes in black flies. Again, study author John Janicki. It turns out that the vast majority of insect species are actually infected with some kind of maternally transmitted bacteria. So I think if you went out and picked any random species and found the endosymbion inside, it might be hard to find out what the function is, but I suspect it probably is serving some sort of a function. In other words, if researchers find that the spiroplasma doesn't cut down on the river blindness-causing nematodes that live in black flies, perhaps there's another bacterial species already living in some population of black flies that does. For Science Magazine, I'm Robert Frederick. You can hear more of our weekly podcast at sciencemag.org. Back to you, Clive. Thanks to AAAS and Science. Andrew, Andrew Herbert, what do you as a computer scientist make to that rather complex piece of basic biology? I'm sure I'm going to offend my biological colleagues in, in my remarks. I, I, I think biology is at a fascinating position, um, they're still really doing botany and zoology. And what we heard was um, things have been identified and stuff have been observed, but there was no agreement on a mechanism that explained it. Um, if I contrast that to my world of engineering, which builds on physics, and under physics is mathematics, we have models, we can make predictions, we can do back-of-an-envelope calculations. 
biology needs that. And an area of research that greatly fascinates me that some of my, my colleagues are working on is called computational biology. And this is using some of the mathematical models we've used to try and understand complex computer systems to understand pieces of biology. I have colleagues in my lab, for example, who've looked at the immune system. We have this kind of concept of in silico biology, using computers to simulate biological systems, to conduct, um, if you like, experiments to try out hypotheses. And then we can go back to the experimental biologists and say, look, we think this might be an explanation. Can you go and confirm it in the laboratory? And I think that could accelerate the speed by which we get from these zoology and and botany results to actually having, for example, um, medical treatments and deeper understanding of what's really going on. So I'm fascinated by this stuff. So am I. Thanks very much, Andrew. I'd like now to move to Andrew Jack in Shanghai. Tell us a bit more about the mood in Chinese life sciences and pharmaceuticals. It's very interesting being here this week. There's an awful lot of international Western companies, pharmaceuticals particularly, that have been uh, investing in China in general and in Shanghai in particular. And that's shown not only a recognition that commercially the market for healthcare in China is huge and growing as this country becomes richer and the government does more to support the extension of quality healthcare, but also in earlier stage research where, in contrast to Italy, as we heard earlier, the government has been very explicit in trying to develop an industrial strategy to permit quite high um, Western-style prices for innovative drugs in order to encourage technology transfer and really been very strategic in trying to develop investments through companies directly, through partnerships and alliances to trigger a lot of new work on innovation. The other thing that's striking and very interesting here, I think, is that in the last few years, there's been an enormous return of the Chinese community that had traditionally left China to study. So you've got this very interesting mix of um, a sense of patriotism, perhaps, but also of energy of Chinese traditional entrepreneurialism coming together with people who've already had a very international uh, experience and training and are now looking to reapply it in their country of origin. Andrew Herbert, the same thing's happening in computer and IT in China, isn't it? I know Microsoft has a big research operation there. Absolutely. And the lab in China opened the year after the lab in Cambridge, so about 12 years ago. And what I would add to what Andrew Jack said is ours followed the same model of expatriate Chinese came back because they wanted to contribute to the the rebirth, if you like, of China. Now I'm seeing those labs recruiting themselves internationally and bringing in non-Chinese people who want to work in the labs because of the strength of the work they do. And so they're becoming a key part of the international scene. When I was visiting India and China three or four years ago, there was very much in each country a sense that one was competing against the other in life sciences, pharmaceuticals, and indeed computer sciences. My impression is that that there's less talk of that sort, and China perhaps is moving ahead. What do you think? I think certainly a number of the Western companies have taken the view that even though India toughened its patent laws uh, over the past three or four years, China actually probably offers greater intellectual property protections. I think the challenge in India 
has been that actually the Indian government state-funded both academic research and indeed healthcare more generally has been much more limited. So in India, you've got a, a period particularly linked to weak patents when there was a huge growth in generic uh, drug companies copying uh, patents from other countries and developing much more sophisticated and low-cost models and becoming an international leader, but partly outside their own country because that's where the growth was. In China, it seems to be almost the other way around, and there's a lot more interest in fundamental research. Andrew, can I ask you about the clinical trials environment in China? Because that seems to be one of the, th- the issues that could hold them back on the global market. Yes, it's clearly early days. I think one of the bottlenecks that uh, companies here talk about is early stage first-in-man clinical trials where the Chinese regulators are still very reluctant to authorize them. So it's quite slow. The regulators, on the one hand, clearly want Chinese patients in clinical trials so they can be assured that there will be safety and efficacy in their own population and because they want to encourage technology transfer and investment. But on the other hand, they're a bit reluctant to be seen as guinea pigs. More generally, there's a bureaucracy and a slowness to recruitment. And as you say, there's also clearly an issue of quality control, which is being very sensitively monitored. On the other hand, um, some of the Western companies that are here certainly argue that if you target it well, you can do an extraordinary amount of very efficient, low-cost recruitment. You have huge numbers of patients who've suffering from diseases but actually aren't on any form of medication or or very old-fashioned treatments. And if you go to one of the big hospitals in a centre like Shanghai, the throughput is enormous. So the potential to find patients to recruit could be dozens or hundreds a day going through a specialist clinician where in Europe or in the US, you might take weeks and require dozens of centres across the country, each with a very few patients presenting with the relevant conditions to be recruited. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for this week. Next week, I'll be on holiday and Andrew will have moved on from Shanghai to Vienna for the World AIDS Conference and he'll be presenting the show from there. So, Diana, both Andrews and Robert in Washington, thank you very much for your contributions. Thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.